my mind. You can have a seat. Morning. I, um, I think one of the great joys of this walk of faith is the reality of gathering with the beloved of the Lord on a Sunday morning, and then the joy of seeing those that you know in faith that you haven't crossed paths with um, in a period of time. And so you come together, hi, brother. Um, you know, so I look out, I see faces of people that I've known for so many years, and what we have most in common is our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's what unites us. And so when you get to cross paths with the saints, what happens is when you read Paul saying, I long to be with you, um, you get it. When you see his, his, his introductory words, um, when Jude says, to my beloved called of the Lord, uh, you get it. And so I'm getting it this morning. When I walked in, I saw these faces of people I know and love. I was so encouraged. My wife sends her greetings. My wife, Kathleen, she, uh, we have a wedding this afternoon at five. Our, our fourth born daughter, Carrie's getting married. And so there is stuff going on, as you can imagine. And I was so thankful when Dan said, hey, could you fill in for Nick on May 7th? Because the wedding's at five. And I'd be walking in circles. So thank you, brother, for the invitation to be with you. Um, turn to Mark chapter four. That's where we're going. We're going to Mark chapter 4, and what I'd like to do as we come to the text of Scripture is I'd just like to pray and ask the Lord to bless um, our time together. Um, if you know Dave Truesdale, he's one of the pastors at the church I attend. His wife, Rachel, passed away on Monday, a uh, long battle with cancer, and um, real courageous, glorifying to the Lord battle right to the end. Uh, so I'd like us to pray for the Truzo family, and then for Nick as he ministers today, um, and then for the time in the Word. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you, the God of all creation, the creator of heaven and earth, all that is seen and unseen, the God who calls and holds together even our next breath, the God who so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life, the God who found us saw us and grabbed us in that place of darkness and placed us in the light that put our feet firm upon the rock who is Jesus Christ and gave us a hope for this moment and into eternity so that we can sing as we sang this morning until the race is finished. I will walk by faith and not by sight. That we will be men and women who regardless of what we see walk because of what we know all the way to the end as Rachel Truesdale did witnessing Christ to lost family members on her deathbed just days before she died. We want to be like that, Lord. Help us, Father, to be those who run the race well. We ask your mercy and your peace upon the Truesdales as they adjust to their new normal. And we pray for those even in this congregation who are doing the same. And we pray for Nick as he ministers to family this weekend. We thank you that he has a giftedness in ministering to hurting hearts, and we're thankful that he is there to do that. We pray you bless that time. And then, Lord, in our time in your word, that, that you would allow your Holy Spirit to do its work, that the speaker and the hearer, our flesh would be set aside, that it would be the Spirit that directs and guides us, that we might learn what you have for us for sanctification or salvation today. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at a very familiar place of Scripture, the calming of the storm in Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. As I read uh, these verses, what I'd like you to, to look for is uh, there is a phrase that repeats itself three times. Uh, in the Greek, it's the word megas. In the English, it's the word mega. Uh, or the word great in its wildest sense, you know, extremely large, huge, mega. So when we get uh, to the storm, your Bible may say it was a great storm or a fierce storm or for, for furious storm, and that's the word mega, but it repeats three times, and that's our outline for our study today. There is a mega or a great storm recorded in verse 37. There is 
a great calm recorded in verse 39, and in verse 41 there is a great fear, and so that's going to be our focus for our study, the great storm and the great calm and the great fear. So let me read, and you'll see it in the text as we walk through these verses. So on that day, verse 35 of Mark 4, on that day when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in a boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. There arose a fierce gale. This is great storm, mega storm. There arose a great gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stem asleep on a cushion, and they woke him, and they said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm, or there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid, a great fear. And he said, and said to one another, who then is this, that even so the wind and the sea obey him? So that's our text for today. May the Lord bless the reading of his word and even apply just the reading to who we are as his followers. So this morning, if you are a Jesus follower, if you are a Christian, if you are born again, this text should cause you to both exalt, which is to glorify God, and exalt, which is to rejoice in God, because we see him fully man and fully God in the text. And just by reading it, regardless of my ability to make sense of the text for you, just by the text itself and the reading it, and you hearing it, it should cause us to exalt him, to both glorify him and make much of him because of who he is in the text of Scripture. So as a Christian, you should walk away today, and you should be like those in the boat who said, yes, then, who is this who calms the sea? When you walk out the door, your mind should be upon a Christ. Who is this that calms the sea? And you would add, and saves my soul. Oh, he should be the most cherished thing in our life, this Savior, the Lord Jesus. He should be the most cherished of everything. It should, be an, it should be unmistakable when we walk out the door that Jesus is none other than God, the majestic king, the ruler of all things. So if you're a believer and you're sitting this morning, when we walk through these verses, you should walk out the back saying, oh, that is my God. If you're not a believer, if this is your first time in church, or you've been coming for 10 years, but you know you're outside of faith, you look around and you know believers. You know they have the joy of the Lord. They're walking after him and you say, I'm not that person. Then I would encourage you to lean forward and listen to who is described here. Lean forward and pray and then continue praying through the revealing of who is in this historical story and pray, Lord, by grace, reveal yourself to me. For of all the false religions and all those false religious leaders that are dead and buried in graves, this Jesus is alive. He was put in a grave dead and he came back alive. And the Bible says there's salvation by one name alone, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and him alone, period. We live at a time where anything is acceptable. Jesus said, I am only acceptable. So if you sit today, I would encourage you, just lean forward and pray and pray and continue praying. Lord, reveal yourself to me that I might cry out to you. Save my soul. So believer leaves rejoicing. Boy, wouldn't we be encouraged if someone who is lost was saved even today as we walk through the scriptures. Let me start by what, saying what this scripture is not primarily about. What is not the prime focus of these few verses. The prime focus is not you and it is not me. It is not this. You have storms in your life. And Jesus calms your storms. It ain't that. Ain't an English word sometimes used by non-Southern speakers. That's not what this is about. This text is not about you have storms and Jesus calms the storms. Yes, that is true. That is true. You will have storms and he is the answer to your storm. That is not the primary focus of this text. And so often we want it to be because we are self-focused. J.C. Ryle said, 
It is good to understand clearly, if you are a believer, you must reckon on having your share of sickness and pain and sorrow and tears and losses and crosses and deaths and bereavements. He has undertaken that all who come to him shall have all things pertaining to life and godliness, but he has never undertaken that he will make them prosperous, rich, or healthy. So yes, we will have difficulties. We will have trials. We will face storms, but Jesus is not a vending machine when the storm hits. Remember the old ones? Where some of you are too young, but the metal handle one where you pulled it and you heard the mechanism inside and you were so excited because that clunk clunk meant boom something was dropping out those were the best things have changed so much now you press buttons but you go poop and it drops jesus is not a vending machine that when the trial comes you pull that handle and out drops exactly what you desired to resolve that storm and sometimes he is looked at as that is he the port in the middle of every storm yes he is always the port in our storms. Does he always answer and provide an immediate solution of your choosing in your timing? No. He's the port, but he doesn't always provide what you're thinking and asking for at the moment you're thinking and asking for it. I had two of my six kids, beautiful young girls, if you never met them, Katie and Annie. They suffered the storm of blindness and seizures and a lack of mobility and wheelchairs and feeding tubes and cognitive loss. And guess what, at 22, same age, eight years, five months, and six days apart, their storm was calmed. They took their last breath, there was no more storm. They were in the presence of the Lord. Storm done, sea calmed in their lives. Well, their port, they came to port at the end, with their last breath. Can you imagine if we saw all of the storms that he is calming right now in our lives? If he pushed back the curtain and we could see every time he calms a storm. You ever pray for someone and then get a praise report? We've been praying for an older guy at church, um, the sister of a, a, dear, of a dear sister in our Bible study group, and her brother lost his vision, older man, loves reading the word. I mean, he had very little left in life but to put his head down and read his Bible. And for five or six months, we're praying. He goes in for treatments, comes back, goes into treatment. And all of a sudden on the phone, it says, praise the Lord. With a magnifier, he has enough vision to read a large print Bible again. He is once again so happy. Sometimes right in the middle of the storm, you see the answer immediately. He is always the port in the middle of the storm. Yes, we will always have storms in our life. The danger is, if you go to this portion of scripture and that is what you see, it becomes pretty man-centric. And this is a Christ-centric portion of Scripture. This is about the deity of Christ. This is about who he is. And by our nature, we always, we always want to defer to making it about ourselves. It's just the way we're wired. And so we won't do that today. We're going to say this is about Christ. So let's look at the text. It says, On that day, when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. So let's, before we get to the great storm and the great calm and the great fear, let's just see what is happening in the text. It was evening time. It was the end of the day, and Jesus, as we read, was asleep in the boat, it says in verse 38. So he was human. He was tired. He had been teaching. So if you go back on your own and you read in Mark, you'll see he was a very busy man teaching. And it's not uncommon for pastors who are teaching uh, on a Sunday to be exhausted on Sunday night. It isn't uncommon for a pastor who teaches in the mission field, gets on a plane. John MacArthur talked about preaching in Russia for eight hours a day for two weeks. And when he got on the plane in Russia, he fell asleep. And he woke up when he hit down in New York and he changed planes and he fell asleep and he hit down when he hit in L.A. Tired. So it's evening. Jesus is tired. He's on a boat and he is asleep. Now, this boat Jesus had ready, <coughs> in chapter 3, verse 9, it says, Jesus, he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd so that they would not crowd him. So Jesus had a boat ready. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, it says he began to search again 
by the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. So Jesus had this boat ready. He got on this boat, and he taught from this boat. What else do we see there? We see that there were other boats with him in verse uh, 36. <coughs> and there were other boats with him. What happened to these other boats? The other boats were with him. The historical context doesn't tell us. Right? In, the, in, the, in the history of what happened, they were just with him. Did they return to shore? Did they stay with him? The word with in the text means accompanied him. So the other boats accompanied him, so we don't have any reason to believe they would have been anywhere but out on the sea with him, because every time Jesus went there, the crowds followed him until he either stepped aside or sent them away, because they wanted to be with him. So they got on the boat, they went out to sea with him, which means that they would have been on the sea when the storm hit. So what would have happened? This is something called common grace. You know that phrase, common grace? If, they, if you were on this boat, you, you, you received the common grace of the Lord. There was specific grace occurring here. There were specific people chosen by Christ himself to be on that boat with him. And he revealed himself in such a manner as God that they were so afraid. And we'll get there. So there was specific grace happening to those on the boat with Christ, but there was this common grace let me read you a definition for common grace. The doctrine of common grace pertains to the sovereign grace of God bestowed upon all of mankind, regardless of their election. In other words, God has always bestowed his graciousness on all people in all parts of the earth at all times. And we go, okay, common grace, yeah. Is this important to me? Common grace? He's a God who reigns upon the just and the unjust. The farmer who knows and loves the Lord, his, his land is watered. And the farmer next to him who rejects Christ and actually hates the idea of God, his land is watered also by a good God. Is this important to us? I would say sorry for the rabbit trail, but it should teach us something about how we look at those who are outside of faith, those who are the God-hating neighbor because we live at a time, right, where what the Bible calls right, the world calls wrong, and what the Bible calls wrong, the world cause, calls right. And isn't it easy to get caught up and focused on the news of the day? Or worse, the social media post of the day that gives you the partial piece of news that matches your hateful algorithm, your frustrated algorithm, and it just brings you those little stories? causes us to potentially become callous or worse, hateful towards those who are lost and have a veil over their eyes. See, if we don't understand common grace, we can actually become like those who were walking by Christ. It says this when he was on the cross in Mark 15, 29, those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, ha, you are those going to, you who were going to destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days. Woe to us if our norm is to hurl abusive words at those who stand outside of Christ or find ourselves in conversations of those who are deep in sin, wagging our head and shaking our fist, saying, oh, just give it time. You'll know what a woman is. Oh, in time, you'll know what a man is. Oh, give it time and you'll know when a baby is created in the womb. And we find ourselves red-faced, and angry, and there is a God who reigns upon the just and the unjust. There is a God where those on the boat we can assume are nothing but unsaved men and women because broad is the road to destruction. These boats followed him out, and that storm could have come, and he could have calmed the storm for one boat and let all of the others perish, but he did not. I would encourage you to say, if he has common grace, I should have common grace. I should be a man or woman of empathy because once you were blind and now you see. 
And I tell you, I'm preaching this one to myself. I live in the same world. I find frustration with what is occurring around us. And I have to come back and ask what I was called to. And I know what I was called to wasn't to be condemning of those who were me before he saved me. When he saved my soul, my life philosophy was this. Try everything once, and if you like it, do it every day. Imagine what that would lead to. No, please, don't imagine what that would lead to. Uh, It's bad. That's where I was when I heard the gospel and I was born again. And when I think about how kind he is with his common grace to allow that farmer to take his crop, the one who hates God, and take it and sell the crop and get the money and come back and cross paths with the, with the farmer who loves the Lord. And this farmer can say to this farmer, can I share with you one more time about Jesus? Could I? Wouldn't that be something if that was us? Common grace, sorry, that's a rabbit trail. It's not really in the text, but I thought it might uh, be important. Jesus said this, in Mark 5, 43 to 48, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may prove yourself to be sons of the Father who is in heaven. This is proof that we're sons of the Father, is that we love and pray for those who would reject us. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more, are, what more are you doing than others? Even the Gentiles do that. Therefore, you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus said the way he showers down common grace upon those who are broken is just like we should be. We should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Okay, back to the text. <coughs> the boats on the Sea of Galilee... When the storm hit, teach us empathy. It next says they took him just as he was. What does that mean? They took him just as he was. I don't know. I assume what it means is he was on the boat teaching, and he said to them uh, when evening, let us go to the other side, and they just went to the other side, that he was in the boat. They didn't take time to get off the boat and have a meal and get cleaned up and then traverse the lake. Also note that the apostles were in the will of God. Pause and think of this for a moment. They were in the will of God. We don't want to miss the reality that he said, let's go over to the other side. And they said yes, and they headed over to the other side. The will of God, and to understand it can be a complicated matter, but in this case, if if this was all your theology, (coughs) if all of your theology was based upon this text of Scripture for the will of God and nothing else, you could sum up, how do I know the will of God this way? He said, do it. And they did it. He said, do it, and they did it. He said, let's go out across the lake. And they said, okay. Remember Solomon, the man with all that wisdom? If you read Ecclesiastes, tried everything once and then tried it again. He said, I'm going to apply wisdom to all the things that men think are good and pleasurable. I'm going to apply my wisdom to them. And he tried wine and houses and vineyards and women. He tried it all. And he says, vanity, vanity, no value. And he ends that book in chapter 12, verse 13, fear the Lord. He says, when everything is said, fear the Lord and obey his commandments. That's what he says. So if you want to ask yourself, how do I know the will of God? Did he say it? Am I doing it? Now, you can study a lot more on the topic, but if you get that, you're good. My little brother was asking me where I can the Dipsy Trail last week. We were on the second set of stairs, and I was breathing heavily, and he said, Joey, is it God's providence? Is that why we're here? Or are we here because I called you on the phone and asked you to come? And I said, yes. Uh-huh. I couldn't talk anyway. I was had no air in my lungs. But um, it is masterful that he is in control of every moment of every day, and yet he calls us to obey and to follow his commands every day. Okay, so um, right in the middle of God's will. Why is this good to know as humans? Because when we face a storm of life, 
we immediately wonder what we did to cause the storm, or worse, we look at someone else and we blame them for the storm, and we go, storm comes, there must be a problem, we must be at fault. These guys were being obedient to the Lord when the storm came. This is what John Piper calls, he sees to it. A friend of mine recommended a book called Providence, you may know this guy, Um, and in it, there's this phrase, he sees to it. See, these men on the boat were right in the will of God, and God saw to it that a storm would come. Have you ever heard Johnny Erickson Tata describe with great joy her life as she has this vision of a Job scenario in her life? Do you know this person, Johnny Erickson Tata, (coughs) 55 years of paralytic, quadriplegic, 55 years, chronic pain, battle with cancer. She says, I have this picture in my mind that Satan comes to God and says, have you seen that girl down there? She's very happy, very athletic. Let me trifle with her. God extends Satan's leash. She dives in the lake and has a broken neck, quadriplegic. Satan comes back to God and says, so she trusts you, but throw some chronic pain in there and she'll cave in. And God extends the leash. Satan trifles a bit more and Johnny suffers chronic pain. And then Satan returns and he says, okay, so you got a quadriplegic with with chronic pain and she still trusts you, but if you give her a life-threatening disease such as cancer, she will defame your name. And he lets out the leash a bit more. He trifles a bit more and here comes cancer and it was a serious battle. Here's what she says about that. Here's what she says about her life. And if you haven't watched her say it, you should go to YouTube or Google, whatever one of those things. Put in her name and listen to her say this. I am so invigorated with that scenario because I am counted privileged enough to make God's name famous, to showcase that his grace is really sufficient, that it is hard. I am not a strong person and I need Jesus desperately. Quadriplegic chronic pain, cancer. She says, I praise God that I might exalt him. And tell people, no, this isn't easy, but I rely upon the Lord Jesus Christ. See, right in the middle of his will, you could be in a great storm. And what a joy it would be to see it with those eyes. Okay, we should probably get to the outline. The great storm. uh, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. Verse 37. Matthew records that the boat was being covered by waves. Luke, that it was filling with water and they were in danger, their lives were in jeopardy. If you take the words of the three gospel accounts describing the storm, it says it was at night, it was sudden, it was a whirlwind, it was mega, it was large, it was thrown upon them, it was gusting, it was storm-like, it was storm-like, it was force, it was furious, it was a tempest, it was a squall, it was a storm-like force of wind. I've never been to the Sea of Galilee, but much has been said and written about this lake. Now, if you're confused because it's called the Sea of Galilee, and I use the word lake, it is a lake called the Sea of Galilee. It's in the region of Galilee. You may know these cities, Capernaum and Bethsaida and Cana are in that region. But much has been known about the lake because it was such a dangerous place to be upon at certain times of the day and in certain seasons. It's the lowest freshwater lake on the planet. Here are some facts. 682 feet below sea level. Prolific for fishing. Surrounded by mountains, essentially on the west and the northwest, mountains that go to rise 1,500 feet. (coughs) On the northeast, if you're a visual person, they rise to 3,000 feet to the Golan Heights, which runs 42 miles in length. The lake then is small in comparison, 13 miles long, 8 miles wide, sits in a bowl, and the water that comes in the lake comes from some hot springs in the River Jordan, flows out of Mount Hermon, which is 9,200 feet high. So this is way down below sea level. Such a pristine lake, one time it provided 50% of all the water that Israel would use and all the fishing you could ever desire to feed people. Not so much on the water today. Isn't it amazing that today, Israel, because they're blessed by the hand of God, are the most prolific 
creators of desalination plants that they have so much water they're selling it. A little dot on the map somehow being protected by the Lord. So the wind would come down off the Golan Heights, a little north of there, turn the lake into what is called a boiling cauldron, turn a routine average summer day into a treacherous place to be in the wrong time on a boat, and the winter was even worse. <coughs> because it was like this, it had been passed on from fisherman to fisherman, the danger of the lake from before the time of Christ. You can get excited about the geography of the lake, which causes the storm. But I must acknowledge, and we must acknowledge again, that this storm did not come because of geography. It came because of providence. The storm on this day came because of providence. It's so interesting. You can read, you can go down the trail of all the interesting facts about this place and this body of water. All of it is secondary to the providence of God in this very moment that he sees to it. And I'd ask you this question, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Apologize, I got a scratch. Before the service today, we had prayer. What stood out to me in prayer was it seemed like everyone who prayed acknowledged the providence of God. So I think you are a blessed people that you have people who believe the providence of God. Because you can hear this portion of scripture taught and the focus is on men and God calming the storms for men and the focus is on the lake and the torrential storms of the lake and never hear the providence of God. But as a group prayed in a circle around this morning, the providence of God was in focus. <coughs> it was in focus. So the fact that you believe it would be a good thing. The providence of God and the belief in it changes your life dramatically. In the Heidelberg Catechism, it says, what do you understand by the providence of God? The almighty, everywhere present power of God. Whereby, as it were by his hand, he still upholds the heaven and the earth. All creatures so governs them as herbs and grass and rain and drought <clears throat> and fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches, poverty, indeed, all come by chance, not by the, not by, come not by chance, but by the fatherly hand of God. Spurgeon says this, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move in atoms more or less than that which God wishes. Do you believe that? Have you ever been hiking on a trail? You saw the dander floating through the air, through the sun, <clears throat> and you said to yourself, that floats because of the hand of God. That's what Spurgeon is saying. Hand of God. Is that amazing? It changes everything about your walk of faith. The storm in Mark 4 came by the hand of God. It was great. It was dark. Thanks, brother. I spent all that cheering at the wedding rehearsal yesterday. <clears throat> Perfect. The storm in Mark 4 came by the hand of God. It was on a dark lake, waves crashing over the boat, sinking and dying, a real possibility. <clears throat> God was not surprised. The great storm came by his hand. How about the great calm? Verse 38 and 39. Jesus was asleep on the cushion, and they woke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. So Jesus asleep in the back of the boat, fully God and fully man. Imagine this, he's the creator of of the sky that he sleeps under and the sea that he floats upon and even the wood that created the boat he was asleep in. He's the creator of it all. In 1986, they found a boat from this era, which is kind of interesting. You can see pictures of it. It's just the wood frame that which is left was drug out of this lake and it's big enough to hold about 15 adults. So the perfect 
boat for this group of men. Jesus was asleep. And if we're honest with ourselves, we think at times that he must be asleep in the middle of our storms. We, we look to him and we go, how could this be the way it is supposed to be, God? Where are you in the midst of this? That's how they felt. They were human. And there's a word, we, when it says, you do not care that we are perishing? It doesn't sound at all like one man went up and put his hand on Jesus' shoulder and said, Master, I'm sorry to wake you, but there happens to be a storm brewing. No, this is we, this is plural. They were yelling at the Savior of the world. Don't you care? Now remember, these men had been with him. So when you find yourself in a storm and you cry out, Lord, do you even care? When you say to him, do you know what is occurring? You've been walking in faith for a day or a year or a decade or many. Here's what these men knew. In Mark 127, he healed one with an unclean spirit and they were amazed so that they questioned among themselves, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even unclean spirits and they obey him? They'd watched a person with unclean spirits be healed. <clears throat> in Mark 134, there were many with various diseases and demons. He healed them all. In Mark 141, they saw him see a leper and he was moved with pity. Right? They knew religious leaders to be self-righteous men in this one. He had compassion upon the leper and he healed him. They were there when the paralytic was put down through the roof and he forgave his sins and healed him. And then he said this to them in Mark 4.11, to you has been given the secret or the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those outside everything else, parable, outside everything else is a parable. They had been given the secret of the mystery of the kingdom. He gave them specific grace. Yet in mass panic, not a calm shoulder, they yell out, don't you care? So I would say one of the lessons you could learn is there will be moments in this Christian walk where you wonder if God is still engaged in your day-to-day, moment-by-moment life because it will get hard. And just know in Hebrews it says we do not have a high priest who doesn't understand. We have a high priest who actually understands all of the thoughts and feelings you might ever have because he lived fully as a man and fully God. And so he understood these men and they say, don't you care, we're perishing, I'm, I'm sure. If he would be able to respond, the word perishing is be destroyed. Don't you care, we're going to be destroyed? He doesn't record his thoughts, but I could imagine he would say, of course I care. I left heaven to come to earth. Of course I care. I called you unto myself. Of course I care. I'm going to go hang on a cross and die for your sins. In their panic, they cry out, don't you care? Do you know this phrase? I know you guys do biblical counseling here. Do you know this phrase, the gospel gap? The gospel gap. It's a reality of living as humans, and this is it. It's called then, now, then. It's like I look back and I go, that was when he justified me. There was a legal determination that I was innocent of my sin, and I began walking in faith, and there I will be glorified. For the first time, I'll see as he sees. I'll understand as he understands. But now, in the process of sanctification, it's really hard. And the gospel gap reminds us that I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. But when cancer hits and job loss and the rebellious teen or the car won't start or your parents need a caretaker or something called the golden years, it's in the right now that we cry out and we say, do you care? And we see here that he not only cared and he said, hush, but he revealed himself as God to those that were closest to him at that moment. And so for us, we know that when we're in that moment and we we cry out, Lord, do you? If we're faithful to be men and women of the word and of prayer and of fellowship and sharpening iron that he he will he will make it clear that he has said hush i'm here for you at this very moment and i'll resolve it right now or when you take your best breath your last breath
He stands up and he looks at the storm and he says, hush, be still, and a perfect calm, a mega calm, a great calm came over the sea. See, these fishermen had seen storms where the, where the wind came up and then it slowly died down and the waves would go to the shoreline and they'd come back to the boat and this would happen for a while until it got calm. But that isn't the word here. This is the word he muzzled the storm. A dog barking, you put a muzzle on, you cinch it, and the mouth does not move. It is stopped instantly when you cinch it down. That's the word here. It's to muzzle it. And can you imagine being on the boat and he says, hush, be still, and it's perfect. You ever been on a lake right when the sun's coming up and there's not, it's just perfectly calm? It went from a storm that was swamping the boat, they were facing destruction and death, to perfect calm. They saw God at work. What a reminder of who controls the heavens and the earth. As we live in a day where man believes more and more they are sovereign over the planet and try to make decisions on sovereignty for the planet, Colossians says in 1, 16 and 17, for by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things created through him and for him. He is before all things and him in him hold all things together. You know that heartbeat you just had? And that one? And that one? He holds it together. He is the sovereign over it all. So there was a great storm and a great calm. As I read my notes to my wife, she said this at this very point, and I, I wrote this down. We'll probably go home after this. I said, honey, that's the great storm and the great calm. And she said this, please put into context, she's a mom who lost one of her daughters on Mother's Day. She held her, her daughter and she died on Mother's Day in her arms. So try to have that context with these words. <clears throat> if he had not calmed the storm, he is no less God and no less worthy of our praise. If he had not calmed the storm, he is no less God and no less worthy of our praise. Hmm. Could hold on to that for a lifetime because it's absolutely true. Great fear, verses 40 and 41. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? See, they had experienced the fear outside the boat, the storm, and now they had a fear because God was in the boat with him. And this fear is exactly the word that you know. It's both to be fearful, to be afraid, and to be in awe and to have reverence for. It's both. Right? It's the reality that I'm in the boat with God who controls the wind and the water, who also knows my innermost thoughts and deeds and corrects me like a father corrects his son. And oh my, he is the God who is so powerful I have to stand in awe and reverence of him. It is both of those words, and that's what they experienced those in the boat needed the lesson that we need. And the lesson is not, I have problems and Jesus fixes my problems. What they needed was what we need both. Well, great fear, great reverence of God leads us to the place that we say he is the all majestic one. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords and the ruler over all. And we get face to face with him by this, by the living word. We read and we read and we read some more. And you know what I found? And I don't know if this is true in your congregation, but I found that many, 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 many people who go to church don't read their Bibles. We will say together, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for the correction of man, for instruction and in righteousness that the man of God might be thoroughly furnished under all good works. He'll be complete and mature and we'll say amen. I believe it. That's why I come listen to Nick on Sunday. But if we go back a chapter, he says, uh, be diligent to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who needeth not to be ashamed, but he rightly divides the word of truth. We'll go, oh, that takes some work. Glad we got Nick. So I'll come on Sunday. He'll preach it. I'll get some. 
you know, keep me till Sunday night, unless the Warriors are getting blown out by 30, and then I'm so frustrated, my week's done, and I go live like everybody else Monday through Saturday and come back on Sunday? See, this reality, to see him as the all-majestic King of kings and Lord of lords and ruler over all, to get face-to-face -face with him only happens in this book. One-on-one, -on -one, you and him. Pick it up and read it. Because then, when you're with other Christians, you'll sharpen each other's iron. Then when you come here on Sunday, what's taught will mean more to you. You'll say, oh, I just read that. I just read that. When Dan sent me the text from Psalm 107 that was going to be read this morning. I read it, I thought, wow, that's phenomenal. I didn't, I didn't cross-reference it when I did this study. But I spent an hour just reading it and enjoying it because it matched with what I had been reading. But if this isn't alive in you, it's just stuff. It's just another thing we do. You want to be like John, Revelation 1. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And I saw seven golden lampstands and 13, seven golden lampstands in the midst of the lampstand, one like the Son of Man, clothed in a long robe with golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. And then if we jump down a little bit, it says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. <clears throat> I am the first and the last, the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So you want to be like John. We want to see him in his living word and have it stop us in our tracks as if we fell on our face. We want to be like Isaiah in Isaiah 61 or Isaiah 6. We Uzziah, it says, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Then he heard this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king and the Lord of hosts. And the one seraphim flew to me, having his hand a burning coal and tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. I want to be like Isaiah who says, woe is me. We're reading the scripture. And we're enjoying it. All of a sudden we come across a couple verses and we're like, oh, woe is me, Lord. Help me to walk as you call me to walk. Help me to fear you and obey your commandments. Help me to be that. Because we're in the living word. See, they were on a boat. They saw it. They heard the living word. Say hush and everything became still. Have you ever been in a storm and you came here and you read and it just hushed you? It just hushed you? Let's close by turning to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. Peter comes face to face with the miraculous power of God. In Luke 5, so there was a crowd pressing around Christ. There were some boats there. Some fishermen had got out of them. Jesus got into the boat, verse 3, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little bit from the land. And he did. And he began teaching. <clears throat> so Peter's listening to him teach. Peter's hearing God speak. And we know from the context of Scripture that when he spoke, he, he spoke with authority, not like the Pharisees. Different than Peter would have ever heard. When he finished speaking, he said, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Peter said, Master, we worked all night, caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When he had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish. Their net began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boats for them to come to help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Peter saw that he, when Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man, for amazement has seized him. Jesus should be so amazing to us that he seizes us. That's who he is. 
And in Mark chapter 4, we see it because there was a great storm. There was a great calm at his spoken word. We saw men with a great fear. And don't you pray, I want to be like this. Don't you pray, I want to be a man who is spiritually on my face in awe of the God that we worship. The one who creates the weather, controls the weather, died on a cross that we might be forgiven. Oh, what a love. So I just ask you this question, and then I'll ask the Lord to to bless this time of study. Do you cherish Christ above all? Ask yourself, do I cherish Christ above all? It's okay to battle with the question. There were times when my kids were born I would look at them and I would think, Lord, I I can't see you. I can't touch you. Can I ever know you and love you and cherish you the way I do Tony and Kelly and Katie and Carrie and Amy and Annie? And I didn't understand. I didn't have an answer. And so I just kept asking. And then at some point in this process called sanctification, and it really happened by the more and the more reading of his living word, I got to a place where I was able to say, Lord, I cherish you more than everything else. So if your answer is, I I don't know that, I would say what we sang, run the race. We sang it, run the race all the way to the end. Just keep running it, not by sight, but by faith, believing that his desire for us is that we would cherish him more than everything else and just keep seeking it. And one day you'll just go, oh, I cherish him more than everything else. You see, the storm is not about my problems or yours or even the apostles being saved from the storm, but rather it's all about the majestic one, Jesus. The angels in Revelation chapter 5 say this, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. May Jesus be the most cherished and precious thing in your life. I'll pray that for you. When you think of me, I think I would ask you, say, We pray for Joe that, Jesus, you would remain the most cherished thing in his life because I am one second away from replacing it with something else. And man, I never want to. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for your living word. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who so loved us that he was willing to follow your command to live on earth, to live as a man, to teach with authority, to heal and show compassion and mercy to go to a cross, to take upon our sin and the sin of all those who would believe, to go to the grave and rise again and teach again and lead again and hold all things together again for us every moment of every day. Lord, help us to more and more cherish you above all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.